This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of deadly terrorism that some may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was November 29, 1987. Korean Air Flight 858 was high in the air, making its trip from Baghdad, Iraq, to Seoul, South Korea. There were 115 people on board, all adults, no children. 104 were passengers and 11 were crew members. All but two people on board were South Korean nationals. Many of them had been in Baghdad working on engineering projects and were traveling home to see their families. As the plane flew over the Andaman Sea in Southern Asia, it exploded. A bomb had detonated, taking the plane down and killing everyone on board. Back in Seoul, throngs of people waited at the airport to welcome their friends and families home. But hours passed, and Flight 858 never arrived. Five hours after the plane was meant to land, the families gathered at the terminal were finally told the tragic news. Flight 858 had vanished. After the shock and terror passed, Many suspected this was the work of North Korea, and they were right. More specifically, this was the work of a 25-year-old North Korean female spy, Kim Yeon-hui. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals. This is our first episode on Kim Hyun-hui, the young North Korean spy who was responsible for a 1987 plane bombing that killed all 115 people on board. 
If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of ParCast's shows on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Many of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoyed the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. Hyun Hui was recruited to spy for North Korea in 1980 when she was 18 years old. She served as a spy until 1987 when, as her final assignment, she planted a bomb on an airplane traveling to Seoul, killing everyone on board. In part one, we'll talk about Hyun Hui's upbringing in North Korea, her recruitment as a spy, and her missions leading up to her final orders, plant a bomb on Korean Air Flight 858. In part two, we'll talk about Hyun Hui's arrest, trial, pardoning, and where she is now. But first, to understand why she did what she did, we need to understand her upbringing. Kim Hyun Hui was the firstborn child in her family. Her father was a diplomat working for North Korea's Department of Foreign Affairs. Kim Hyun Hui was born in Pyongyang, North Korea, on January 27, 1962. In the traditional Korean convention, her family name Kim comes before her given name Hyun Hui. At the time of her birth, North Korea was a communist nation ruled by dictator Kim Il-sung, of no relation to her family. Kim is the most common surname in Korea, accounting for roughly 20% of the population of North and South Korea, so you'll hear that name a lot throughout this story. North Korea, also known as the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, has a complicated history of annexation and colonization. In the 1590s, Korea was invaded by Japan, and tensions between the two countries escalated until 1910, when the Japanese Empire finally took complete control of Korea. Throughout the years of Japanese occupation, there were numerous protests and marches, but the Koreans couldn't regain control of their country. After the surrender of Japan from World War II in 1945, Korea went through another regime change. In 1948, Korea was split in half and annexed, with the Soviet Union taking control over the northern half and the United States taking over the southern half, thus creating the North and South Koreas we know today. Joseph Stalin named Kim Il-sung, who had served in the Soviet Red Army, as the head of the People's Committee, North Korea's emerging Communist Party. In 1948, Kim Jong-il became president. Throughout his years as leader of North Korea, Kim technically did hold elections. However, if a person didn't vote for him for re-election, they could be sent to concentration camps or even killed. So he remained in power until the end of his life. In 1950, North Korea, led by Kim Il-sung, invaded South Korea, starting the Korean War. The Korean War officially ended in 1953, but the two parts of Korea remain divided to this day. All of this happened more than a decade before Kim Hyun-hui was born. However, Kim Il-sung remained dictator throughout her upbringing and into her adulthood, and his influence pervaded every aspect of North Korean life. When Hyun-hui was a child, she was taught to see him as a god. 
According to the book North Korea, Modern Nations of the World by Deborah A. Miller, by the late 1960s, there were more than 34,000 monuments built for Kim Il-sung around North Korea. And these statues and images were meant to be worshipped. The propaganda surrounding Kim Il-sung made up a cult of personality. According to Miller, quote, This cult of personality can best be described as an organized effort to persuade North Koreans to worship Kim Il-sung and to accept his policies without question, end quote. In her autobiography, Kim Hyun-hui tells of neighbors who dared to defy Kim Il-sung and were taken away. The threats were very real. Therefore, the people in North Korea had no choice but to keep Kim Il-sung in charge. During Kim Il-sung's reign, the first words North Korean infants were taught to speak were, Thank you, Kim Il-sung, our great leader. This was mandatory in every household. From a young age, North Korean children were also taught that the Western world, and specifically the United States, was the greatest enemy of North Korea. According to Hyun Hui in her autobiography, The Tears of My Soul, she was told as a child, quote, America is the eternal enemy with whom we can never coexist under the same sky, end quote. North Koreans definitely had a reason to hate the United States, the Korean War. According to CNN, an estimated 406,000 North Korean soldiers and 600,000 North Korean civilians lost their lives in the war. The New York Times states that roughly 70 percent of all Korean War casualties were civilians. The total number of North Korean casualties amounted to about 25 percent of their population. And the United States was the driving force behind the destruction. According to the Irish Times, the United States dropped more than half a million tons of bombs on North Korea, as well as using napalm and chemical weapons against them. So it's easy to see why North Koreans hated America. Kim Il-sung earned his people's loyalty by preying on their fears in the aftermath of this devastating war. Just a quick disclaimer before we jump into that. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Sammy. According to Columbia University historian Charles K. Armstrong, quote, the long-term psychological effect of the war on the whole of North Korean society cannot be overestimated. The war against the United States, more than any other single factor, gave North Koreans a collective sense of anxiety and fear of outside threats that would continue long after the war's end, end quote. This fear of the outside world made North Koreans believe everything Kim Il-sung warned them about. They believed capitalism was evil, and communism was the only option for an equal, safe society. Communism did appear to be working for some, like Hyun Hui's family, who were well off compared to other North Korean families. Because of Hyun Hui's father's job in the government, her family was afforded some luxuries, like being able to own their own apartment in Pyongyang, the capital city. According to Hyun Hui, they were also lucky in other ways that might sound insignificant to us. She says, quote, It was a luxury to always have cooking oil in the house, to be able to fry food, end quote. When Hyun Hui was a year old, in 1963, she and her family were afforded a change of scenery. Most North Koreans never get to live in or even visit other countries. But Hyun Hui's father was transferred to Havana, Cuba, to work at the North Korean embassy. 
Although communist dictator Fidel Castro had already taken control of the country, Cuba's communist economy was much more prosperous than North Korea's was at the time. Hyunhui and her family got to live in a mansion. Her mother gave her piano lessons daily, and Hyunhui could buy ice cream from an ice cream truck whenever she saw it drive by. This was much different from North Korea, where food was rationed, living spaces were small, children had to work, and the art children learned to make was mainly for propaganda. According to her autobiography, Hyunhui says that the time they spent in Cuba was the best time of her mother's whole life. Hyunhui was happy as well. She earned the nickname the Chocolate General because she developed a love for all things chocolate. Hyunhui lived in Cuba for five years, until 1968, when she was six years old. During their six years in Cuba, Hyunhui's sister, Hyun Ok, and brother, Hyun Su, were born. Before they went back to North Korea, Hyunhui's mother took her to get her hair permed. It was a popular look, and she knew it wouldn't be possible to get a perm in North Korea. Back in Pyongyang, Hyunhui enrolled in school for the first time. But school was much different in North Korea than in other parts of the world. According to Hyunhui's autobiography, quote, Academic studies took up less than half our time. During the bulk of the day, we were kept busy learning about the life of our great leader, Kim Il-sung. End quote. They learned about all the wonderful things Kim Il-sung did for North Korea, myths about his life and upbringing, and all about their enemies, America, Japan, and South Korea. This seemed normal to Hyun-hui and her classmates. They didn't have anything else to compare it to. Growing up, Hyun-hui was a model child. She was adorable, intelligent, and a loyal supporter of Kim Il-sung. She was chosen to sing at a children's festival honoring Kim Il-sung, and she became a member and leader of the Youth Corps. The Youth Corps was a group of children that helped enforce rules and customs around the city. For example, according to Hyun-hui, quote, Kim Il-sung ordered that women should not wear pants in the summer, so the children would patrol the streets and carefully check the clothes of pedestrians. If women were indeed wearing pants, or if anyone had forgotten to wear their Kim Il-sung pins on their jackets, we children would demand their names, and they would be reported immediately to their supervisors at work." End quote. The Youth Corps had other jobs, too, like finding scrap metal that North Korea could trade to other countries for weapons. If a child didn't make their quota when collecting these items, they would be publicly shamed. Though we can't study the specific psychology of the Youth Corps due to North Korea's continued secrecy, this situation can be compared to China's militant student group, the Red Guard. The Red Guard was an army of students in China during the Cultural Revolution from 1966 to 1976. The goal of the Cultural Revolution was to promote communist ideology by banning elements of China's traditional capitalist culture. To this end, the children and teens in the Red Guard held rallies and marches and spread propaganda and sometimes even committed acts of violence. According to the study Psychic Impact and Outcome of the Chinese Cultural Revolution, many former members of the Red Guard experienced PTSD, guilt, and depression during their adult years. Most felt like victims rather than perpetrators. They tended to focus on the violence and psychological trauma they endured as punishment during their time in the Red Guard, rather than the acts of violence they committed against others. 
Hyunhui doesn't specifically report any of these psychological effects in her autobiography, but the public shaming she and other Youth Corps members endured may have weighed heavily on her psyche. During her childhood, Hyunhui's second brother, Bum Su, was born. She was now the eldest of four children. She excelled in her studies and became a role model for her brothers and sister. She was a model child. But growing up in North Korea's conformist culture, Hyunhui, like other North Korean children, never really got the chance to develop into an individual. According to psychologist Carl E. Pickhart, quote, Adolescent growth toward young adulthood proceeds along two major psychological paths, establishing independence and developing individuality, end quote. If the growth along the individuality path is stunted, a child doesn't learn to form their own beliefs and opinions. In a culture like North Korea, where every citizen is told what to think, do, wear, and believe, Hyunhui and her peers missed this critical step in adolescent development. Without this sense of individuality, Hyunhui grew up believing what she was taught, never asking any questions. When it was time for her to think about secondary education, Hyunhui did get to make a decision. She decided she wanted to study biology at Kim Il-sung University. This university was reserved for children of government officials. According to Hyunhui, it was the closest thing to a Western-style university in North Korea at the time. Before and during college, Hyunhui had to do mandatory military training and menial work for the country. In her autobiography, she notes, quote, I had trouble keeping up with my studies because most of my spare time was spent doing mandatory farm work in the nearby countryside, end quote. Hyunhui's father suggested she transfer to Pyongyang Foreign Language College, which would give her a respite from the farm work. She did transfer, deciding to study Japanese. She thought she might like to be a diplomat like her father, and learning another language would help round out her resume. While she still had to attend military training, she found it much easier to focus on her schoolwork at the Foreign Language College. Other than the training, she didn't have many distractions. By law, students were not allowed to date. According to Hyunhui, those caught were expelled, and some were even deported to labor camps in the far north. While some students likely broke this rule, Hyunhui, being the obedient young woman she was, didn't date. During her second year of college, when she was 18, Hyunhui was called in for a meeting with a man who turned out to be a North Korean secret agent. After a quiz to determine her education level, knowledge of Kim Il-sung, and loyalty to the Workers' Party, the man asked Hyun-hui one final question. Would you be willing to die for the party? 18-year-old Hyun-hui was caught completely off guard. She knew she had no other choice but to say yes. We'll return to Hyun-hui's path to crime after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1980, 18-year-old Kim Hyun-hui was recruited to be a spy for North Korea. 
She didn't have a choice in the matter. In North Korea, you did what your country told you to do. Because of North Korea's secrecy, we can't be sure exactly why she was recruited, but it's possibly because she'd exhibited strong loyalty to the government as leader of the youth corps. Additionally, Hyunhui was already becoming fluent in Japanese, thanks to the educational opportunities afforded to her by her father's government work. She may not have intended to become a spy, but she was very well qualified. And she was happy to serve her country. But the suddenness of it all was overwhelming. Immediately after her meeting with the secret agent, she was taken back to her dorm to clean out her things. Then, she was taken home to say goodbye to her family. She was nervous to tell her parents about the life she would now be living. She was their oldest child and was meant to be a role model for her siblings. They expected her to live a traditional life, marrying and having a family. But now, all of that was gone. She was being forced to leave them and live a secret life in service to North Korea. This was supposed to be a wonderful thing for her family to hear. She had been chosen to serve her country, but her mother, father, and sister were upset by the news. Her two brothers pretended they were happy for her, but she could tell they were sad to see her go. She didn't want to leave them either. But she had to, and she knew it would be a long time before she could see them again. The very next morning, her handler, an older man named Agent Chung, picked her up and drove her to training camp in the mountains. The camp was surrounded by security and even guard dogs. She was given a new name, Kim Okwa. She was forbidden to tell anyone her real name, including her roommate. Her roommate was called Kim Suk Hee, and they were around the same age. During their three years in spy training, the women learned many things, including Chinese and Japanese languages, martial arts, and how to shoot guns. They also went on missions where they had to trek miles through the wilderness, sleep in foxholes, and practice survival. They were subjected to intense physical exercise that included running and weight training. Hyun Wee was there for two years straight before she was allowed to visit her family. Adjusting to training like this can be compared to adjusting to U.S. military training, which can be psychologically distressing for some people. According to a 2006 United States study called Psychological Adjustment During Army Basic Training by psychologist Pamela Davis-Martin, depression and anxiety are common when recruits are beginning their training. For a few recruits, quote, Serious levels of depression or suicide are likely to occur within the first 20 to 60 days of basic training, end quote. The study found that in the first week of training, women experienced more anxiety than their male counterparts. Additionally, many people going into this sort of new, intense situation develop what's known as adjustment disorder. According to Psychology Today, adjustment disorder is an abnormal and excessive reaction to an identifiable life stressor. Symptoms include depression, anxiety, change in social behavior, and physical issues such as headaches, stomach aches, and chest pain. Though we can't be sure, it's possible that Hyunhui was trying to deal with these psychological factors while working through her extreme spy training. And on one of her visits home to see her family things got worse. She found out her youngest brother, Bum Su, had been diagnosed with terminal skin cancer. He was still a child, but she couldn't stick around to spend much time with him or to console her grieving parents. She didn't have an option. She had to go back to training camp. 
1983, after three years of training, Hyun Hui took her final exam. This was a week-long series of extensive mental and physical tests. The physical component included a 10-mile run, weightlifting, sprinting, hand-to-hand -hand combat with weapons, and more. The mental component was a two-part test. Hyun Hui and her comrades were given four hours for each part. They were questioned about languages, history, math, information about weapons, and more. At the end of the test, 21-year-old Hyun Hui had one of the best scores in the group. She passed with flying colors. She had always been a model student, no matter what she studied. Now that she and her roommate Suki had passed their final exams, they just had to wait for their assignments. In July 1984, when Hyun Hui was 22, she got her first assignment. She was going to be sent around Europe and Asia to report on the conditions of capitalist countries. This was sort of a test mission, so she could practice living under a new identity. Hyun Hui was paired with an old man named Kim Sung Il, who was in his late 60s. Their story was that they were a Japanese father-daughter duo on vacation. Hyun Hui would now go by the name of Mayumi Hachiya. She was given a dossier outlining every detail of Mayumi's fictional life. She would have to memorize everything. She couldn't afford to think too long or make a mistake, or her cover would be blown. In Europe, they would tour Moscow, Budapest, Vienna, Copenhagen, Frankfurt, Zurich, Geneva, and Paris. Then, Hyun Hui would be left alone to travel to Macau, Guangzhou, and Beijing in China. After all of her training, Hyun Hui was excited to get started on her work. She was proud to serve her country by reporting the dark truth about life in enemy nations. But when Hyun Hui arrived in Europe, she says she was, quote, struck by the fact that the cities were generally clean, the establishments well-serviced. Most of all, I was astounded by the abundance and variety of goods that were available in the shops, end quote. Remember, Hyun Hui grew up in a country where food and goods were rationed and luxury items didn't really exist. This must have been a big culture shock. Even though she was impressed by some of the things she saw in Europe, she couldn't get past the propaganda she had been taught all her life. In her autobiography, she says, quote, I nonetheless maintained my ingrained belief that the cities of Europe were corrupt, decadent, and inferior, end quote. But even her beliefs couldn't prevent her from being awed by the beauty of Europe. She especially loved Switzerland and the Alps. At times, Hyun Wee found it difficult to maintain her undercover story. Anytime she saw a police officer, she got nervous. She always felt like someone suspected her. Japanese tourists tried to speak to Hyun Wee and her partner, but she was always too afraid to engage in conversation. Psychologist Ursula Wilder says that the continuous secrets and deceit that spies keep inside can be damaging to their psychology long term. She says, quote, agents can come to feel subtly detached or separated from other people, feelings that may persist even when they resume their normal lives once their espionage is over, end quote. The stress of Hyun Hui's first mission may have affected her personality for the rest of her life. When Hyun Hui went to China alone after her trip to Europe, she noticed that even though China was also a communist nation, their food and goods were more plentiful than North Korea's. She started to think about how strange North Korea really was. 
she'd managed to brush over the prosperity in Europe by pointing to the evils of capitalism. But here was a fellow communist nation that managed to provide better food, goods, and services than her country. From birth, she'd learned that North Korea was the best country in the world and that they were better off than other nations. But her experiences abroad painted a totally different picture. When Hyun Wee arrived back home from her mission, she had to submit a report. If she had doubts about the superiority of North Korea, she didn't betray them in the document. She wrote, quote, My visit to the capitalist countries of Europe only confirms what I had been taught about them. It was the exact truth that only a handful live well and that ordinary citizens lead awful lives. It was pure hell. End quote. In her autobiography, she says that looking back, it was an absurd thing to write. But at the time, she fully believed in the ideology North Korea had instilled in her. Nevertheless, Hyun Wee says, quote, I couldn't wholly discredit or forget the affluent and carefree societies I'd left behind in Europe. Memories of the well-stocked shops and beautifully dressed people kept coming back to me. End quote. Several months after returning to North Korea in 1984 or 1985, Hyun Hui and her training camp roommate, Su were given their next assignment. The two women would now be going on a mission together. They would move to Guangzhou and Macau, China together in order to better learn the Chinese language and culture. The young women were in China for roughly a year. Over time, Hyun Hui began to learn things about her roommate. Su dreamt of getting married and even claimed she wanted to defect and marry a European man. This was a dangerous thing to tell a fellow spy, but after the time they'd spent together, Su Ki and Hyun Hui trusted each other. Neither of them chose this career path, and while Hyun Hui was eagerly embracing her life as a spy, Su Ki clearly was not. Plus, they had both fallen under the spell of Macau, a capitalist city in otherwise communist China, Macau was a Portuguese colony at the time, and was therefore much different from the rest of China. Hyun Wee went to nightclubs, danced with men, and for the first time, wondered what it would be like to have a relationship. She felt herself becoming more and more attracted to the capitalist culture. But soon after she started getting used to it, she had to return to North Korea. When she got back home in 1987, Hyun Hui got to enjoy a rare visit with her family. This was her first time seeing her family in nearly two years. But when she got to her parents' house, she received tragic news. Her little brother, Bum Su, had died from skin cancer at the age of 15. It's never easy to lose a loved one, especially a sibling. Psychologist Therese Rando says, quote, The death of a brother or sister means that you've lost someone who was a part of your formative past. This person shared common memories with you, along with critical childhood experiences and family history. This person has known you as a child and is a part of the roots to your past." End quote. As Hyun Wee began to lose more and more of herself through her work as an agent, Bum Su's death may have hit her particularly hard. She'd lost one of the few remaining connections she had to her past life. She saw other things that she had missed out on, too. For example, her younger sister had gotten married while Hyun Hui was away. Even more straining was that Hyun Hui couldn't tell her family anything about how her own life had been for the past several years. In her autobiography, Hyun Hui says, quote, 
I sensed that I was drifting farther and farther away from my family. I'd been forbidden to talk about my training or my missions, so there was a sense of strain, of not knowing what to say. Oh, there were so many things we wanted to tell each other, but instead we only became more and more estranged. End quote. It didn't help matters that Hyun Hui was only allowed to stay with her family for a few days. When her superior agent, Agent Chung, went to retrieve her from her house, her father was so angry to have his time with Hyun Hui cut short that he actually grabbed the agent and pushed him against the wall, yelling, When are you returning my daughter to me, damn you? In the midst of his anger, Hyun Hui's father turned to her and said, You're not my daughter anymore. You belong to them. So go. This heartbreaking interaction was likely caused by all of the stress from Bum Su's death, concern about Hyun Hui's safety, and the estrangement Hyun Hui's work had put on the family. Hyun Hui knew she had no choice but to go. She had officially given up her family for her country. And as much as she missed them, there was no turning back now. Hyun Hui couldn't focus at training for the next week. She felt horrible about how she'd left things with her family. On the following Sunday, which was a free day, Hyun Wee decided to sneak out and see them again. Even though Sundays were days off for the spies, they were not allowed to leave the camp. But for the first time in her life, Hyun Wee decided that it was finally time to break the rules. She asked her roommate to cover for her, and she crept through the woods and walked more than 10 miles to a bus stop that could take her back home to Pyongyang. Her parents were surprised to see her. She talked to them for a long time, and they mended their differences. Her father explained that he was proud that she worked for the country, but he was also sad they had lost her. She spent the night there, feeling much better about everything. But little did she know, this was the last time she would ever see her parents. When Hyun Hui arrived back at training camp the next morning, Su Ki told her that no one had noticed she was gone. Agent Chung had just been by to see her, but Su Ki covered for her. Hyun Hui was relieved. She'd made it out scot-free. She went to see what Agent Chung had wanted. He told her that it was time for her next mission. She didn't get many details besides that. Agent Chung told her to be ready in 15 minutes. She asked him where she was going, but all he said was, quote, you should pack everything you own because it's unlikely that you'll be coming back, end quote. We'll follow Hyun Wee's mystery mission after the break. Now, back to the story. In November 1987, 25-year-old Kim Hyun-wee was given what would be her last mission as a North Korean spy. She and her partner, Kim Sung-il, the older man she had traveled to Europe with, were told that they would be planting a bomb on Korean Air Flight 858, a plane traveling from Baghdad, Iraq, to Seoul, South Korea. The goal was to create chaos in Seoul. The city was scheduled to host the 1988 Summer Olympics the next year, and North Korea hoped to create enough mayhem to stop the event. They hoped that the vulnerability and political strife in South Korea would be their opportunity to reunite North and South Korea under Kim Il-sung's rule. Hyun-hui was told Kim Jong-il, the son of Kim Il-sung and the heir apparent to his father's dictatorship, had personally handwritten the order. Hyun-hui felt honored to be chosen to carry out Kim Jong-il's orders. 
In her autobiography, Hyun Wee says, quote, I could hardly believe my ears. I felt such a mixture of awe and dread. I was flabbergasted that I would be entrusted with such a mission. And I must admit that not for a moment did I think of the moral issues involved, of the consequences of killing perhaps hundreds of people, either personally or in any larger ethical sense. End quote. Hyun Hui's upbringing in North Korea had essentially brainwashed her into ignoring the consequences of her violent acts. According to the J-Rank Psychology Encyclopedia, brainwashing techniques include the complete removal of personal freedom, independence, and decision-making prerogatives, the absolute obedience to authority in all matters, intense physical abuse and threats of injury, death, and permanent imprisonment. All of these things were present in Hyun Hui's life. She didn't get to choose her path as a spy. She was dedicated to Kim Il-sung 100%, and she feared imprisonment or death for her or her family if she did anything wrong. The brainwashing taught her that the number one goal, the best thing that could ever be accomplished, was the reunification of North and South Korea. All that was on her mind at this moment was that she would get to be the one to accomplish this goal. Hyun Wee was further convinced that this mission would be worth it when she was told that this would be her final mission. After the bombing, she would be out of the spy service and allowed to return to her family. With the pain of her estrangement and her parents' sadness so fresh in her mind, this must have been a tantalizing offer. But the subtext of that conversation was, if you return. This was a dangerous mission, and there were many things that could go wrong. This flight would make two stops before landing in South Korea. Unlike today's flights, the same people would get back on the same plane after each stop. Hyun Wee and her partner Sung Il were supposed to get off the plane at the first stop. They would have to escape onto a different flight without being stopped by security. But if the bomb detonated early, when Hyun Wee and her partner were still on the first plane, they would be killed. That wasn't the only danger. If they didn't manage to escape without getting caught, the two spies were instructed to kill themselves with cyanide tablets they'd hidden in the ends of their cigarettes. Cyanide is a fast-acting, toxic chemical that can be instantly lethal. Cyanide tablets have been used in espionage since World War II as a backup plan in case someone who knows valuable information gets caught. This way, they can kill themselves before they're tortured into revealing important secrets. It was sure to be a dangerous mission. But nevertheless, on November 12, 1987, 25-year-old Hyun Hui and her partner Sung Il headed out. To avoid detection, they took a circuitous route to their destination. First, they flew to Moscow, Russia. Three days later, on the 15th, they flew to Budapest, Hungary. They stayed at a safe house there for four nights. During their stay in Budapest, Sung Il became very sick. He had stomach problems, and he told Hyun Hui that he had recently had stomach surgery. Hyun Hui thought he might have cancer, but he didn't tell her, and she didn't ask. After Budapest, they traveled together to Vienna, Austria, to get Japanese passports. Like their first mission together, Hyun Hui and Sung Il would be posing as Japanese father-daughter tourists. In Vienna, they were given plane tickets to Baghdad by way of Belgrade. Once in Baghdad, they were to board Korean Air Flight 858, which would make stops in Abu Dhabi and Bangkok before finally arriving in Seoul. But Hyun Wee and Sung Il wouldn't be making the full journey to Seoul. 
Once they got off the plane in Abu Dhabi, their plan was to buy tickets to Rome, Italy. They would pretend to be tourists in Rome for a few days before returning to the North Korean embassy in Vienna. They would stay there until they could be taken back home to Pyongyang, North Korea. After getting their tickets and paperwork in order, Hyun Hui and Sung Il finally arrived at the Baghdad airport on November 28, 1987. At the airport, Hyun Hui and Sung Il received a briefcase from two other North Korean agents. This briefcase held the bomb they would use to blow up Flight 858. Sung Il was in charge of carrying the briefcase. The bomb had been hidden inside a battery-operated radio to avoid detection. In 1987, airport security was much different than it is now. Passengers would walk through a metal detector, and their luggage would go through a quick X-ray. According to a Los Angeles Times article, the detection rate for guns and bombs in 1987 was just 78.9%. The agents probably figured that since the bomb was hidden inside a radio, it would go undetected. The plan actually worked. But while the security guard didn't notice the bomb, she saw the radio's batteries and stopped Hyun-hui. She told her no batteries can be brought aboard a plane at this airport. Hyun-hui panicked. They needed the batteries to activate the bomb. Her mind jumped to thoughts about failing the mission, being sent back to North Korea, and being sent to a concentration camp, or worse. But Soong Il stepped in and threatened to file a complaint with the Japanese embassy if the woman didn't let them through security. According to Hyun Hui, the worldwide economic power Japan held at the time made the security guard reconsider. She unwittingly let the two North Korean spies through security with a bomb. On the other side of security, Soong Il was supposed to bring the bomb and radio into the bathroom in order to arm it. However, the men's bathroom was too full, so Hyun Wee had to do it. Hands shaking, she went into the woman's bathroom and armed the bomb. In her autobiography, Hyun Hui writes, quote, At that moment, I felt no guilt or remorse at what I was doing. I thought only of completing the mission and not letting my country down, end quote. It's still hard to believe that Hyun Wee thought it was okay to kill hundreds of people in the name of reuniting North and South Korea. We can't say whether it was because of her spy training, her brainwashed perspective on the world, or some other reason. But we do know that if all went according to plan, Hyun Hui would be off the plane when the bomb went off, so she wouldn't actually see the people die. According to psychologist Abraham Rutchik, it's psychologically easier to kill people at a distance than up close. He says, quote, when people are faced with moral dilemmas, if the process is more intimate and personal, the decisions are harder than for those who are more withdrawn from the situation, end quote. In other words, if Hyun Wee had to kill someone face to face, her perspective on the situation might be different. Exactly. In theory, hand to hand killing is more morally difficult than killing from a distance. For example, leaving a ticking bomb on a plane, knowing you'll be far away when it detonates. Hyun Hui armed the bomb and set the timer for nine hours, hoping beyond hope that everything would go according to plan. She and her partner boarded the flight. Hyun Hui put the briefcase with the bomb in the overhead luggage bin. Then she sat down next to her partner. All they could do was wait until the plane landed at the next airport so that they could get off safely. Everything went well during the flight. 
Though Hyun Hui was very nervous, no one suspected anything of her and her partner. When the flight landed, Hyun Hui and Sung Il got off the plane, but before they could make their escape, they ran right into the hands of authorities. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. Join us next Wednesday as we continue our look into Kim Hyun Hui's airplane bombing and examine the question, is brainwashing a valid excuse for murder? You can find more Female Criminals and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show, and if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Stacey Milborn and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson.